Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Bookable. Bookable is a podcast. It's a show that dives into a single book with the author as tour guide. It features engaging sound design, tight interviews, dynamic music. It is less a book report or a book club and more something entirely new. It's a book exploded into audio form. Bookable cracks open nonfiction bestsellers, national book award winners, obscure cult classics, works in translation, all in the name of helping you decide what to read next. Bookable is hosted by author Amanda Stern, creator and host of the Happy Ending Music and Reading series in New York, and it features your favorite and soon-to-be favorite authors sharing stories both in and around the book with deep dives into how the work came to be. Guests include Alexander Chi, Mira Jacobs, Susan Choi, Julie Oringer, Edgar Carrot, and Jennifer Egan, among many more. Each Sunday, listeners can expect engrossing interviews, creative sound design, and mood-provoking scores as you settle in to explore a new book one that everyone's talking about, a classic, or even something slightly obscure with the author leading the way. Bookable is brought to you by Loud Tree Media. You can listen to new episodes every Sunday by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this program. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Other People Show. It's good to be with you. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. I hope you're doing well wherever you are. I have Lee Stein back on the program today for, I believe, the third time. She is celebrating the, the uh, publication of a new novel. It is called Self Care, and it is available from Penguin Books. I really enjoyed catching up with Lee. I like to do this with certain authors, touching base with them as they move through their lives and careers. And I feel like right now is a particularly opportune moment to be talking with Lee, not only because she is celebrating the publication of this new book that's getting all these rave reviews and generating all this buzz, but also because she is coming out of a period in her life where personally and professionally she has been through some stuff. And I think the stuff that she has been through has informed the writing of self-care. I think that the themes that she is working with in this book are of interest to me in a particular sort of way. So the contents of her book and the contents of her mind animate me. And I enjoyed having this conversation and catching her as this thing makes its way out into the world. And I'm going to stop paraphrasing right now. I'm going to stop paraphrasing the conversation and instead just get to the conversation 
So here it is. This is Lee Stein, and her new novel, once again, is called Self-Care. So at the time, I was running a conference for women and gender-variant writers called BinderCon, and we did one event in New York every year and one event in L.A., every year and so the last time we were in LA I'm not sure if it was it was either 2016 or 2017 we we uh, came to your garage <laughs> okay and so things were you know things were happening then you were in the thick of it and you've now written uh, a, like a, a satire of the girl boss era and I think like you know you, you can speak to this obviously better than I can but a lot of the uh, desire to satirize this stuff and to sort of process it in this way came as an outgrowth of the experiences you had working on BinderCon and in particular, I think, dealing with the drama of the online community? Yeah, absolutely. So for those who um, aren't familiar with my BinderCon work, um, it, it came out of a secret Facebook group for women writers that a different a different freelance writer started this group, not me, but I was so obsessed with this Facebook group that I said, let's have a conference and that turned into me becoming executive director of a 501c3 nonprofit organization, doing two conferences a year and running the Facebook group. And I loved doing the conferences. They were so rewarding. Um, I really loved the programming element of it. I loved being there in person and meeting writers and seeing them succeed. But the Facebook group was mired in drama and controversy, and it became kind of my 24-7 job to wake up in the morning, open Facebook, and see what the latest fight was that hashtag Lee Stein was being called in to moderate. And in the spring of 2017, I couldn't take it anymore. And I just had to resign. And I ended up leaving Facebook at that time. And that's when I started writing this novel, uh, which is about female co-founders of a wellness startup. So my novel is set in the for-profit <laughs> girl boss capitalism sphere. Um, that and because it's a satire, I kind of had to elevate, uh, elevate and exaggerate things in order to make fun of them. Um, so that's kind of the, the world that I chose to set it in. But it was definitely inspired by my own experience co-founding a feminist nonprofit. Yeah, I mean, there's something kind of goopy about it. I, I feel like a little like there's like an essence of goop in there. Correct? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And I and I think of the novel um, as almost like a Trojan horse, where the outside of it is pink and goopy and has all these references to you know things you've heard about on the internet. It's very kind of the their office is kind of the wing esque, um, but then inside I'm saying kind of some deeper and darker things about identity and about the way we live online. So when it comes to the experiences that you had at BinderCon and the you know and then this desire to satirize. I have to imagine. Uh, have to imagine that there was like an emotional component to that transition. <laughs> you know, taking these experiences and the exhaustion that they probably produced in you, the emotional exhaustion uh, to go along with the physical exhaustion, and then maybe some disappointed ideals can lead to satire. Can you talk about like the just the emotional context of the experience and the decision that you made to leave BinderCon and then turn to satire? Yeah, I mean, by the end, I was really burnt out. And there's a joke in my book where one character Googles something like burnout or depression, which worse. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd had depression. I've struggled with depression since I was 13. I'm very familiar with what a depressive episode is like. But this burnout had its own unique kind of contours and color. It was this just 
ongoing bitterness and resentment. It felt like each email that came in my inbox was like a paper cut. Like it was like I couldn't possibly do one more thing. And I always felt like I was trying to push through this fog and this bitterness to get things done. And I did, I didn't recognize myself at the end. And I actually, I said to friends and I think I said to my partner at the time, I said, I I don't think I'll ever be able to write again. I didn't think I'd be able to write another book. And they said, you know, you will, you will. Um, But I didn't believe it. And then I slowly started working on self care. And my original idea for self care is, um, I'd, I'd started following business news and like news out of Silicon Valley more closely. And I'm fascinated by these founders that go on these like spiritual journeys or these digital <laughs> detoxes right? in like Palm Springs. Um, so my original idea was like, what if there's like a burnt out feminist organizer and she gets sent to like a digital detox, but it's crossed with the yellow wallpaper novella by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. So like she's being gaslit and being told there's something wrong with her, but it's also her rest cure. So that's where the book started. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that sounds good to me, like right away. And I, like, I'm immediately thinking of, do you remember when Jack, the Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter, yes. like, celebrated his 40th birthday by going to like, he went to like, um, What's it called? Myanmar. You know, for, I think he went to Myanmar or, or something like that. Oh, something. yes. For a Vipassana silent retreat. Yeah. And he like sent pictures. And then like he whenever he does press photos, you know, he's got this beard and like the hood over his head. He looks like a character out of Star Wars. And it's like the, there's something and maybe this is just the cynic in me. And I was actually just having a conversation with a friend of mine about this last night. But if you spend any amount of time in the world of... um. I don't know, like guru world or something. <laughs> like, guru world, yes. Yeah, it's hard not to get a little bit cynical pretty quickly. And just the idea of uh, corporate CEOs conflating themselves with guru uh, culture and like taking on like the guise of the guru, just it just feels to me like the confluence of a lot of things that I'm not a huge fan of. <laughs> Well, it's so interesting and it's not an accident. And I touch on this a little bit at the end of my girl boss essay that we're becoming increasingly uh, irreligious uh, in terms of Judeo Christianity. Um, so we're, we're looking to these other figures for kind of religious guidance. So Jack Dorsey does become a kind of like icon for a certain kind of striving entrepreneur, or we look to female founders on Instagram for their correctly worded Black Lives Matter statement um, as an indication of their of their virtue and that we can keep following them because they said the right thing. So I think it is a little disturbing and creepy who we're making into these religious icons. Yeah, no, there was an interesting article. Uh, sorry, I'm trying to kill a mosquito. <laughs> uh, I have mosquito, like there, there are these mosquitoes in Los Angeles and I forget the name of them, but it's a specific like species and they're very fast and they bite your ankles. And oh. I have like one or two of them in my garage and they're torturing me. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I uh, I was, what was I just going to say? We were, you were talking about Jack Dorsey. Oh, religious figures. Oh, right. I was reading an article about uh, like the rise of the bro podcast. It's like the Tim Ferriss's and the Joe Rogan's and the, um, you know, there's a million of them. But they basically, or the Sam Harris, you know. Yeah, uh, it's like the secular bros who are about like biohacking and you know going into a barrel sauna after work and taking an ice bath and 
eating this but not eating that and you know like it 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 does become a kind of replacement for judeo-christian traditions which i think i think there's really something to that i think people in the absence of these traditional structures when they've they've sort of failed us or they've kind of outgrown Mm -hmm. we've kind of outgrown them people are turning elsewhere to try to find answers and to try to find i think a sense of community too Um, absolutely but i think (laughs) I, and I think that's fine. And I think in a lot of cases, like I, I'm, it's a positive development, you know, better this than, than some sort of, uh, I don't know, like a mythical dogma that isn't rooted in any kind of reality or something. But I also think that it's easily, you know, it's a situation that can be easily exploited by bad actors or I, I, I guess I'm just very mistrustful of any kind of guru posture by anybody. I, I am... Maybe that's the fallout of my like unhappy Catholic youth, but I just get, I just, find, <laughs> I just find my, my, like, I find myself like dropping into like a, uh, like a karate pose. Like I'm just on defense, you know, <laughs> like as soon as somebody starts to, starts to Yeah, just... because you really lived through that dogma as a young person. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and like, and, but I could never access it. It never made sense to me. And it was a very disorienting experience as a child when you're like, what? And everybody around you, including all these adults, are like, you know, whole hog. They're all into it. And I just, it made me feel like both deficient and mistrustful and like frightened and just like, just weird, you know? And uh, I don't know. I'm still working. I'll be working it out for the rest of my life, you know, trying to sort of decide where I fall on all this stuff. And it feels like your book and the world that it's living in and the concerns that it has are speaking to this sort of stuff. Yeah. And I'm also thinking of another podcast you must know, which is the dream podcast, which is all about MLMs and this kind of idea of prosperity and manifesting wealth. Um, and one of the parts of my book, I haven't talked about this in another interview yet, but, um, one of the characters, her mom was one of the characters is middle class, uh, grew up middle class, and her mom was an Amway. And I wrote this based on my own mom, who was an Amway. And my mom read the book. And she was like, that's exactly what it's like. She's like, I had actually forgotten what it was like to be in that but to be told if you just believe hard enough and have a positive attitude, you will, you will get the wealth that you deserve. Um, and that's another kind of kind of culty message. Um, that that comes they, they, these messages come at us from so many different places right and and like this is the thing too like you just hit the nail on the head uh, with Amway is that all too often like the overwhelming majority of the time these uh, communities or podcasts or you know whatever it is you, you know when people come together usually around some sort of leader figure it, the the end game has something to do with prosperity and money <laughs> Uh, yep. And it usually enriches That's the American dream, right? Right. But it's so depressing to me. Like I think of, you know, if we're going to be talking about self-help and, you know, guru culture in the American capitalist framework, I think of Tony Robbins as like this sort of, uh, you know, he's sort of the, uh, what's the word? The quintessential figure to me, like the, sure. mar- the marriage of capitalism and like self-care. <laughs> Totally. Uh, that whatever problem you have, there's something that you can do personally to overcome that. It's never the system. It's always about what can you do. Right. And and just like the, you know, I I, uh, I say this and of course I've like read those books and like I find him a figure of fascination. Uh, and then there was the piece I think in, uh, what Wait, was it? Wait, tell me, why did you read his books? I'm so curious. Just Clueless and 20. 
like 20 years old, you know. Just, oh, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, and just like, what? Do, how do I do life? You know, the same kind of thing that I think draws people to this stuff, uh, especially young men to this stuff. Um, same thing with me. I'm not separate from it or above it, you know. I think I've moved on from it, but I'm also 44, you know, like. Um, I but, mean, I'll come out on this podcast as someone who's read part of 4-Hour Workweek. Yeah, no, I've read four. I read. I, I'm fascinated with the whole thing. Like I read all yeah, of it. Yeah, I am too. I, am I too. read all. I've read Four Hour Workweek. I've read uh, Tools of Titans. I've listened to Tim Ferriss's podcast. I don't think he's an evil guy, but I just feel like there's something about the culture that I just can't. I just find myself exhausted by it, and I t- I tune it out because it's always about. I, I think part of it is that it's always about achievement and competition and beating somebody else. You know, like there's always some element of that you know when you start to really peel it apart and that exhausts me but this is interesting because i'm wondering if there's a gendered element to this because i've also read like the jen sincero you are a badass you are a badass at making money um series and the message to women in those books is like don't be don't be timid don't be afraid about making more money like go for it because you know, once you make more money, you can be generous and you can donate it. So it's interesting the different messages that that come to men and women that are that are still trying to deliver the same ultimate goal. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, there's maybe some of that too on the male side. I think a lot of it, you know, some of it's what they're saying and some of it's what I'm hearing. Um, I think the point that I was driving at a second ago with Tony Robbins is that if you look at the full arc of his career. Um, you know, he started out like helping people get over their snake phobias or however he wound up becoming like a public figure. You know, he did these like stunt kind of like healings that I think started to get people, you know, uh, interested and started to get him media appearances. And then you, you press fast forward like 30 years and he's like living in Palm Beach, which is to me like the epicenter of oligarchical wealth in America. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and he's like hanging out with Carl Icahn and you know, all these, like that's the, that's the world that he aspired to and wound up in really is like these people who control billions of dollars and who have figured out the money game. And you know, that is where I find myself feeling, um, alienated, you know, where yeah. I'm just like, wow, is this really the end game that we're pointing to? Right. Like, I know, like, money in and of itself is not evil, and I know you can do a lot of good things with it if your heart is in the right place, but it just always feels like, it just always feels like a hustle, you know, that it's all about, like, hey, I'm rich, I'm fit, I'm tan, I'm successful, my teeth are white, you want to be like me? Pay up, you know? <laughs> like, and, yeah, and it, there's also, the whole industry is built around it never being enough, right? You can never have enough money. You can never have enough possessions. Um, you're, you're never there. Um, you're always trying to achieve. And I think this, this is from the wellness industry too. You know, maybe, maybe I toned my triceps, but there's always more I could be doing to tweak my diet and my exercise and all that. Yeah, it's like, oh, you got the barrel sauna? Oh, I've actually moved on from the barrel sauna. <laughs> The barrel sauna was yesterday. I actually figured what out. What is a barrel sauna? It's what all the bros have. Like all the bros, like, you know, it's like, it's like a sauna that I think is, you know, you can assemble it or it comes assembled to your house and it can fit, oh. in, it can fit inside of a, of a, uh, reasonably well-proportioned urban domicile. So that like, <laughs> if you live in San Francisco and you're like a coder bro, you can like have a sauna in your rental apartment in the hate or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like... <laughs> Um, got it got it but they they run like you know they sit like like jack dorsey they just there was some article floating around the internet just the other day about jack dorsey and how he like drinks like lemon infused water for breakfast and doesn't eat except for one meal a day at dinner 
he goes into his barrel sauna, jumps into his ice bath, walks five miles to the office, you know, like meditates for like an hour, you know, just this incredibly austere, you know, like Ben Kenobi, like vibe or whatever. And it's just, it's an eye roller. And, you know, I, at the same time, I'm a person who's into meditation and I've, I've studied Buddhism quasi seriously for my adult life. Mm -hmm. So I'm not apart from it, but I'm just, I, I guess, I guess I just find myself increasingly wanting to hide maybe uh, a better way to couch it would be to talk about like how you were in this outward, outward facing role at BinderCon, where you were kind of helming you know this community and you were uh facilitating so much and dealing with so much in terms of uh putting out fires and communicating with people and answering questions and tending to people's emotions and I think like at that level of engagement at a certain point you do burn out, do you not? And and you have to find a way to like <laughs> take care of yourself. Right. Right. Well, everything that you're saying is is making me think of this idea of self-care. And the thing about self-care is that it doesn't cost anything to take care of yourself. You know, sitting in silence, drinking water, sleeping at night, going outside and getting some vitamin D. These are all things that make us feel better. Um, and they don't cost any money, but there has been a whole industry that has come up because the industry, the wellness industry knows we feel like shit. And so they say, pay us $20 or $50 or $200 and we'll help you take care of yourself Buy this product, buy that product. And I think there's something seductive about that. You know, like if this face mask is sold to me as a way to treat myself at night and it's 20 bucks, yes, I, I'm willing to pay 20 bucks to feel better. But how often do I do the simple things that are really nurturing myself. Um, I, I'm, I'm with you on all of that. But then I also think that there is an obvious uh, element of privilege to self-care. Like I think about just the ability to sit around thinking about this bullshit. Like sitting, yeah. sitting around thinking about, uh, you know, Jack Dorsey's meditation rituals or which face mask to wear. Or like there are a lot of people in this world who are just like trying to make rent and like... <laughs> you know, like get food on the table and like the idea of being able to sit around and like think about which moisturizer to use is just laughable. Um, and so that's I absolutely true. But, but the, there's always this kind of trickle down effect. So when I go to Walmart, there are lotions and creams and products at Walmart that are, that are for me to take care of myself too at a lower price point. So in, in a way, the wellness industry is, is the diet industry and the beauty industry kind of rebranded. And there's always going to be things sold to women at all income levels, um, to take care of themselves. This is a whole industry. I think too, like, uh, the way that the internet has sort of flattened things makes these kinds of cultural trends move much more quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think prior to the internet, it was maybe a little bit more difficult to, uh, to have a, a, an understanding of what was going on. Like how, like what Gwyneth Paltrow's beauty rituals were like, maybe you could read it in a print magazine, but um, those audiences were smaller and that information moved a lot more slowly, but now it like circulates on social media and suddenly, you know, you have, you know, 20 million people aware of it and, uh, talking about it and, you know, being snarky about it online. Yeah. And, and that brands have figured this out. And so someone like an Emily Weiss at Glossier is selling her products directly to consumers on Instagram because that's where millennials are. So she doesn't have stores all over the country. She has Instagram and very chic advertising for her products. In Instagram has become basically all you need, really, if you want to yeah. sell products and build a brand. I mean, especially if your audience is millennial or younger, 
um, I have like, I have some friends who work in that world, like in the world of branding and like Instagram is where it's at. That's basically where they spend the majority of their time. Well, I would assume that millennials, even if they're broke, <laughs> have more disposable income than maybe TikTok users, which are younger. So and I think Instagram skews more millennial than Gen Z, though I could be wrong on that. Oh, yeah, because these things change. Like every generation has its own place or something. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I keep hearing more and more about TikTok. And I'm like, I am so old. I am such an elderly millennial. I cannot I cannot learn a new trick. Well, no, uh, yeah, I'm over at all of it. But also, isn't TikTok <laughs> like I feel like TikTok is like a product of Chinese intelligence. They're just collecting data on everybody. And it's, oh, I'm sure. You know, and same thing with Facebook. I like Facebook and Instagram, like taking all of like facial recognition and like God only knows what they're they're strip mining out of our lives to be used at a later date for nefarious purposes. Like I don't trust any of them. I, I think that uh, I don't know. I'm sort of anti all of it. I'm like the crotchety like Gen X guy. <laughs> if we're gonna... I've been spending a lot of time talking to Gen Xers lately, and I really am enjoying it very much. Well, I feel like in some ways, I don't know. I don't want to sound like I'm complaining, but I feel like Gen X is sort of like the forgotten, you know, between the boomers and millennials because of the numbers, you know, Gen X is like this much smaller generation that doesn't get uh, talked about much. Um, you see this over and over again that a poll, a political poll comes out and they're like, boomers think this, millennials think that. Yeah. What about Gen X? Gen X, I feel like. I, Gen X opted out of the survey. <laughs> Gen X opted out of the survey, but I think Gen X as like a bridge, obvious bridge generation, especially when it comes to digital culture. Um you know, like we have some connectivity to the the younger years of the boomers because we had an analog childhood. Totally. Uh, and then we also, I think, have like a greater ability to communicate and understand with millennials because we were young enough to, um, you know, assimilate to online culture and social media, mm -hmm. you know, more so than the boomers, like many of whom like still don't know how to turn on a computer or whatever. But um you know, I don't know. It just, it just feels to me like sometimes, uh, it's just like a forgotten thing. Not that I give a shit. And I feel like these distinctions too, <laughs> these distinctions are often, you know, pretty silly. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a really lazy broad brushstroke way to sort of characterize people. But I guess there's in some, you know, some very broad way, something to it. Yeah, my partner was born in 1980, and I was born in 1984, and he is always insisting that he is of a different generation. He's a Gen Xer, and I'm a millennial, so he likes to tease me about that. Um, but it's such a subtle difference. What's the cutoff? I think it's 80. I think he's the last year that you can call yourself a Gen Xer. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, my sister was born in 79, my younger sister, and I distinctly remember there being like a, a very different cultural um, set of interests and attitudes among she and her friends, among her and her friends. Um, yeah. Even though there was only four years difference between us. Like, I was just like, wow, like <laughs> my high school graduating class. And like, mind you, I was raised in Indiana, which was not exactly like a cultural hotbed, but like <laughs> we were all into like sixties rock and roll. And like, <laughs> like we were so, yeah. I feel like we were so late on all, all these things. And, and uh, then my sister, like when she was in high school, like it was all about hip hop and um, not that I didn't listen to hip hop when I was younger, but I just detected that there had been a shift in a short span of time. So uh, I guess the point that I'm making is that these things can change pretty quickly. Like even if it's just a four year difference between you and your partner, mm -hmm. that, can, that can mean a lot in terms of personal experience. Yeah. Um, 
So uh, you sit down to write this book after resigning from BinderCon. And how long did it take you to, to finish it? Like, what was the work period? Um, I think it was like the fastest book I've ever written. It took maybe almost two years, a little less than two years. Um, it's also, it's funny because some of the, the, the criticism I'm getting more than anything else is that it, it ends too quickly and it's too short of a book. And it's actually my fourth book and the longest book I've ever written. And so I keep feeling like I tried, <laughs> I, I wrote as long as I could, <laughs> but this is not my, that's not my skill set. I'm not a long, I'm not one of those writers that writes, you know, 200,000 words and then cuts it later. Um, that's a lot of words. I mean, 200,000 words, like that seems insane to me. Yeah, I'm just pulling that out of the air. But I, I know that some people are like, you know, follow the Anne Lamott shitty first draft advice and they just write lots and lots and lots of words and they edit it later. And I come from a poetry background. And so it's like I write one perfect sentence at a time and then I write the second perfect sentence. And it's a slow it's it's a slow process, but that's like how I prefer to work. Yeah, that's how I am, too. Like I, I wish I could just like uncork myself and let myself go. But I feel like if I do that, I just wind up writing a really shitty draft. Um, that's like, yeah, that's like, yeah. it's like a, not, not only shitty, but lazy. Like I just can't tolerate it. And it's not like I'm not going to go back and fix it later, but, um, I, I have to think about what I'm saying. I don't know. I, I just, people do it different ways. I'm just not capable yet of, of, uh, maybe doing it the, the Anne Lamont way. Another thing that changed about my process for this book, and maybe this will be interesting to you because I know you write screenplays too. Do, do you know about John Truby? No, uh-uh. So a friend of mine, a novelist friend said, this is the book you have to read. So this is the cult that I am a member of. It's the John Truby cult. Okay. She gave me this book called Anatomy of Story. That's about plot structure. And John Truby is like a LA Hollywood guy. Like I think he's like, um, he works at, like he consults on Pixar movies or something. He might be, I don't even know if he's still alive, but, um, anyway, she gave me this book and it like changed my life as a writer and I used his method to write my book. So the reason that people can't put my book down and are just turning the pages is because my book has a plot <laughs> and I learned how to write that plot from reading this book. So I did like outlining and thinking about my characters in a way that I'd never done for another book. The other books, I just kind of figured it out as I went along. Interesting. Okay. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, and did you have with this, like, was this because you were just like, I need help and I need to figure this out and I want to take a different approach as a creative experiment? 
or were you thinking to yourself, I want to write a convention, a more conventional story, a conventionally plotted story that might have some, um, some ability or, you know, better ability to transfer itself to film or television as a screen property. I was thinking a little bit about that, but more I was thinking about writing something that was plot driven. And I actually, I love reading like really voice driven literary fiction and memoir. Like I'm a huge fan of this kind of lyrical essay stuff. Um, But I also love reading page turners. And so I really set out to kind of learn how to write in that mode while still being true to myself as an artist and and what I wanted to do. Um, So that's what I was thinking. I was thinking like, how do I write a plot driven page turner. I think that's a great, I think that's a great experiment to conduct, especially if you're somebody who's starting from a place like poetry or from, you know, more voicey literary fiction, like that plotless kind of meandering literary fiction that most of us, I think, uh, who listen to this show probably write. But, um, (laughs) I, I think like, I've always been a believer in cross pollination. Like, I think if you're somebody who's great at plot, you should be reading literary fiction and thinking more about character and voice. And if you're a literary fiction person, it probably would behoove you to read some like really great plot driven fiction that, um, you can't stop turning the pages, you know, like they should inform one another. Yeah, totally. Uh, as opposed to being at odds. But, um, when you sat down to do your outline, were you following true? It's Truby. Is that his name? Yeah, Truby. So his his basic method is like a seven step structure. So and and some people I haven't read Save the Cat, but I know a lot of people like Save the Cat. And I think Save the Cat and Truby have some things in common. Um, But he has these seven steps. So this is like a very it wasn't like multiple page outline. It was like I just kind of thought through these seven steps and I would also go back to them over and over. So it wasn't like I figured it all out at the beginning and sat down to write the book. It was just kind of a way of thinking about the book. So it's not only that I used his method, it was that I spent time thinking about my characters and my storyline when I was away from the writing. I think in previous books, I did all my thinking when I was sitting down at the computer to write. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think that, uh, you know, I've read Save the Cat. I have not read Truby, but I think that there is uh, something pretty obvious and clear about the fact that there are like hardwired, um, like like architectural motifs that we, whether we know it or not, have come to expect from our stories um, as consumers. You know, whether we're reading a novel or we're watching a movie, uh, especially I think when we're watching a movie, um, you know, you have been either programmed just as a homo sapien or programmed by, you know, decades of Hollywood movie making to expect certain things to happen at certain moments mm-hmm, in a story. Mm-hmm. And, I don't think it's, uh, you know, I think it's actually a really useful thing to think about, you know, because not necessarily because you have to be like a 1000% um, believer in like one person's particular uh, framework, but because I think if nothing else, thinking about story architecture in this way attunes you a little bit more to caring about your reader, which... Mm, That's absolutely true. Like, I find find myself... It's very easy for me to forget about that and to just crawl inside my own navel. Like, I'm just like, oh, I'm just trying to get my my feelings out on the page and I'm trying to, like, express myself artfully or whatever. And it's like, well, how's the reader going to experience this? Um, I'm constantly having to remind myself that. And I think that maybe one of the gifts of great writers is that they have an intuition for that that, like, far exceeds mine. You know, like, 
some people just really, I think, have a, a natural like gift for for audience awareness. Do you know what I'm saying? Like maybe, maybe, yeah. This is. I'm so glad you brought this up because it's something I think about all the time. And um, I work. I work as a writing teacher and also as a book coach, one on one with writers. Um, but but sometimes when my client is like stuck on a problem with their writing, I'll say like, well, what do you want the reader to take from this chapter? Like, are you trying to make the reader cry? Are you trying to make them laugh? Do you want to leave them on a cliffhanger so then they read the next part? Even asking yourself these questions and putting yourself in the other's shoes can be so illuminating to get unstuck on some sticky problem. Yeah, no, I totally. And uh, it's funny how it's easy to forget. Like, I I guess maybe it's just because of the the basic dynamic of being alone with your computer or your notebook or whatever, like there's nobody sitting across from you, you know, like, yeah, um, it's like easier if you're doing like a stand up set because there's that, or at least pre COVID there was the, uh, you know, immediate like reciprocity of the audience telling you whether or not it was working. And with writing, you know, it's like you and your cup of coffee and your screen and you're like, well, I'm laughing, you know, so <laughs> this must be funny, yeah. but it's not always the case. You know, you, you have to have, I think a, I don't know. It's like your antenna. Maybe it's a skill you can sharpen, but I feel like some people just have like an incredible knack for it. And maybe those are the people that are like really good at social media, you know, who are just like fish <laughs> who are performing themselves all day. Yeah. They're performing themselves all day, but they have like an, like an kind of an unerring knack for how to like talk to their audience or something. Um, I, I, I can't help but wonder. And I think most of us have at least spent like five minutes wondering, like who, what is it? Like, what is the formula for people who are able to, um, catch on, on social? It's like sort of a weird mystery to me. Like why certain. It's totally practice too, though. Like I was recently in a conversation with Emily Gould, who I think is like a master at Twitter. Um, but she's been like writing about herself online for years. Like I have, like, I'm, I'm very comfortable. Do I want to say that? Am I very comfortable? I'm very used to, um, uh, performing myself on the internet. I've been online and online communities since I was 13 years old. So I don't really know another way to be though. Sometimes I question whether I, I do want to keep doing this, but I think people who can figure out that way to seem authentic and candid, um, draw followers, even though it's manufactured, you, you hide that it's manufactured. Right. Like Chrissy Teigen, like she seems like like, like we're just, I'm having a cocktail with her, like out by the pool. Like it just seems so <laughs> right. real. Yeah. But it's not real. It's just as real as like anything I post, right? Like we're both trying to perform. She has a bigger audience than me, but, um, see, but I, before I'm not on social media anymore, but like before I left, I would try to do that. And I just felt like people were kind of like, eh. like sometimes it worked. And then other times people were like, Ugh. you know, like. Like, I don't know. Like, I just feel like some people have the knack. Maybe, maybe there was like some bullshit inside of the tweets that didn't work that I wasn't even aware of, but like pe <laughs> people could like sense it, you know? I liked your tweets. I actually didn't know that you left Twitter. I, consider me a fan of your tweets. Well, I, the Twitter account for this show still lives. It's just not run by okay. me. I have somebody else like oh. tweeting for me, um, you know, just so, so this is like the Wizard of Oz moment. I'm yeah, I'm, uh, I'm behind the curtain. I have nothing to do with it. I do still like, I got to say though, I still read Twitter. Like I read the internet, um, mostly just for news, just because sure. I don't know. It's just like, it's way more, it's way easier to just go scan certain Twitter accounts to find out what's going on in the world than it is to like traipse around to like the various newspaper sites or whatever. So 
um, I'll peek in on it that way, but I don't, I don't communicate and I don't really miss it. You know, like there's some sort of pressure I felt to like, you gotta be witty, you know, like you gotta have something to say. And I'm glad to not have to say anything on Twitter anymore, you know, and you can save your thoughts for these conversations and for my book, you know, like I'm, I'm working on, I've, I've been working on a book and I got to say that I've been working better and more on it since I'm not on social media. I feel like a lot of my creative energy, um, you know, especially in the aggregate was bleeding into social media. Yeah. Um, it takes a lot of energy and that's another part of it that really pisses me off. Is like when you start to think about the formula, like, yes, they are, you know, these platforms are providing, um, you know, a way for you to reach an audience, quote unquote, you know, there's very few people who wind up, you know, accumulating a meaningful audience, but, um, you know, at least the potential for it exists and yes, it can connect you with friends and give you like a fun little way to like chit chat with one another, but you're also just, you know, you're basically like a, a working slave for these companies providing free content to them that they then monetize and cash in on. Yep. <laughs> it's like, Hey, wait a minute, you know, and then Jack Dorsey's like flying around the world on a private jet to go to a silent retreat. And it's just like, okay, I've had enough. Like, right. It's like not, nothing's really free. It's just, how are you paying for this service with your data, with your content? Right. And, um, let's talk about, you know, as a, um, you know, semi-natural segue, the, the fictional company in your book, which is called Ritual, R-I-C-H-U-A-L. I see what yes. I see what you did there. Um, <laughs> but you've got like, I think three archetype characters, like three main characters that you're working through um, as you know, in your satire. And I guess it would be interesting to hear you talk about how you arrived at these three archetypes, I guess, having done the work that you do and having lived online the way that you have for, you know, like you said, since you were 13 years old, it's probably fairly easy to intuit these, but um, they feel very familiar to me, you know, and, and, uh, it'd be great to just kind of hear you talk about how you arrived at these people. Sure. So there's three women at the center of the book and the book is told in, uh, chapters that alternate from their different points of view. And Marin is, uh, people who know me will probably recognize me in Marin. She is the workaholic COO of the company who thinks she can do everything better herself and has a hard time delegating and um, also thinks she knows better than everyone else. And so with her character, I was trying to think about how far how far could someone go to hurt someone while telling themselves that they're doing it for the right reasons. So this really came out from this Facebook drama where I saw women taking other women down in the name of feminism. These were all self-avowed uh, feminists just destroying each other. I mean, people were calling people's workplaces to out them. They were doxing them. It was just ugly. Um, so Marin is a self-righteous feminist workaholic with a drinking problem. And she started the company with Devin. Now, Devin is the face of Ritual. She's kind of the millennial Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, and with her, I was really making fun of the extremes of wellness culture that often mask eating disorders. So Devin eats, you know, her non-GMO, organic, gluten-free, dairy-free diet. She goes to these extreme fitness classes um, every night to maintain her perfect figure and her her perfect face. Um, so she feels resentful that she doesn't get enough credit for all that she does. Um, <laughs> and can I interrupt? And, can I interrupt you real yeah. quick before we get to, is it Khadija? Or Khadija, yeah. Khadija, yeah. Khadija. So, 
Uh, I just want to talk about diet and eating disorder. Um, yeah. And the way that these things intersect with wellness culture, because uh, like I'm a vegetarian, I haven't for a long time. And I'm also one of these people who's incredibly susceptible to any kind of article online where it's like tomatoes are bad. I remember Gwyneth, where Gwyneth was way <laughs> down. She was way down on nightshades at some point. And I was like, oh my God, like as much as I like to roll my eyes at Gwyneth Paltrow, like if she's got some sort of intel on like a food product that is, you know, we thought it was good, but actually it's bad. I will click that shit and it will, inf <laughs> it will infect my head. And, yeah. and I'll be thinking about it at the grocery store. Like, man, I love tomatoes, but I guess they're bad for me now. And then, you know, six months later, it'll be like tomatoes are actually, they cure cancer. And I'll be like, oh my God. <laughs> like it just, it feels like an insane, uh, like merry-go-round, you know, it just constantly, the information is constantly circulating and changing and, you know, do you have grain brain? That's one that just really drives what me. What is that? Well, if you eat whole grains, like are you eating grains? Like the body wasn't designed to eat grains because cavemen didn't eat grains. Cavemen, you know. And so what, what does grain brain do? What does it do to your brain? It makes you like lethargic and you can't think oh. and, you know, makes you, um, you know, it, it, it basically cognitive decline. You can't like whoop ass at work and get the edge, you know, like, so instead you've got to eat grass fed beef and like, you know, and, uh, get into your barrel sauna and whatever else. And so, right. The, the paleo. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, and so I guess I just find myself again, it's the potato bug thing where at a certain point the noise gets so loud and so grating that I just want to be like, okay, like, like I always go back to the Michael Pollan mantra. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but where he's yeah, like, yeah. eat food, mostly plants not too much. Not too much. Right, right, right. And I've had so many conversations with uh, friends over the years, like, cause everybody, especially in Los Angeles, you can imagine like people, like, it's very easy to fall into conversations about diet in Los Angeles. Like what food are you eating? And like, oh my God. Right, what food are you <laughs> oh, do you like, have you tried? What to... are you not eating? Yeah, right now? yeah. What are you not eating? Let's all talk about what we're not eating. And I just feel like, just like, as you were saying, when you boil it down so much of this stuff, like after, uh, you know, like whatever's, whatever remains after you boil it down, it's just eating disorder. Like that's what it really comes down to. It's not, you're, you're not interested in health. You're not even interested in animal welfare. Like what you're interested in is your own vanity and you have some sort of weird, like toxic relationship with food. And, you know, maybe there's an element of that to me, but I just think that like, it doesn't get said enough, uh, in these contexts, like just how, uh, crazy and tedious it can get and how it's often just like a very thin mask for an unhealthy relationship with food. Yeah. And I think when it becomes obsessive and compulsive, that's really a sign of needing disorder. And there's even, um, the term orthorexia, which is a obsessive compulsion, uh, or a compulsion, compulsive obsession with healthy foods. Um, and it was really interesting. Um, you know, to write this book, I spent a lot of time online, as you do, Brad. Um, <laughs> but I followed different influencers and noticed what they posted and what they wrote. And um, by the time the book came out, this one influencer on Instagram called Lee from America, but it's not spelled like my name, it's spelled L-E-E. -E, she came out as having orthorexia and she wrote a blog post and basically said, like, you know, she had cut out so many foods. There was hardly any foods she could eat. And um, it was damaging, damaging her health, I think, physically and emotionally. Right. And then there's also like, like the, uh, I don't know if this would fall under the ortho, uh, orthorexia umbrella, but like this tendency to embrace the exotic over the more mundane, like traditional. Mm. 
So it's like, oh, you know, I, I'm going to drink this obscure tea that's from, you know, Bhutan and I'm going to go to Whole Foods and I'm going to source like source. Yeah. It's a great do, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, like yeah. it's just like, it's always like this, uh, always. Then it becomes like a fetish. Exactly. For food. That's what I'm trying to get at. Like fetishizing exotic foods that in some way make you feel like you have the edge, you know, like, oh yeah, I'm, I, I've got the clean energy of yerba mate versus, you know, the toxic coffee or whatever it is, you know, people can convince themselves of all sorts of things, but you know, you look at like just, uh, like all the different ways we're making milk now and water. It's like coconut water and maple milk. Or, oat milk. You know, oat milk. <laughs> they're milking, they're milking everything. And it's like, I honestly feel like they're like, what else can we make a milk out of? We're going to make a, you know, we're going to make a, a bunch of money by convincing these rubes at Whole Foods that they're somehow getting antioxidants or something because, uh, you know, I had somebody, you know how they have those little people in the store trying to sell you stuff? Um, yeah. Free sample. Like samples? Yeah, yeah. 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 And it was like, I want to say, was it maple? It's like, I want to say it was maple milk or maple water. No way. It was like. Oh, maple butter is a thing. No, it was like water, but it was like infused with maple syrup or I don't know what it was, but I was just like, oh my God, like maybe this is what I got to do. Like I got to just figure out what has not been milked yet <laughs> and milk it. <laughs> infused is also a good verb. There's some infused water in my book. You got to just take something and infuse it into something else and then you get something new. It's the, infused is definitely a less creepy verb. Let's, let's, at the very least. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. It's just, again, like it just, after a while, I just kind of close my eyes and go, my God, like what have we come to? And here's what I want to ask you. Uh, as somebody who I think you would probably identify yourself as a feminist, correct? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think I'm a feminist too. Uh, like what, if, if the, if the definition is like, do you want women to have equal opportunity, equal rights, equal treatment? Um, I'm probably missing something, but you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I'm definitely a feminist. Equal pay for equal work. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, I'm there and yet I can also find myself especially when I'm observing online culture and the way that these things have um, evolved and mutated over the years, I can find myself exhausted there as well. Like mm -hmm. um, when it comes to cancel culture, when it comes to litigating online, you know, who's good, who's bad, who's evil, who's a hero. Uh, I, I get really confused, first of all, because I don't know who to believe. You know, it's like it's easy when you start to. Right. Who gets to decide who the good ones are and who the bad ones are? Exactly. Exactly. And I I'm all for justice. You know, I think that it's important if somebody's a true bad actor that there be consequences. Yep. Excuse me. But I, I also believe in due process. Yep. And I think there has to be some acknowledgement of both sides. Like that's kind of where I'm landing on it. Like if you, do, if in the absence of due process, it begins to feel puritanical and it begins to make me very uncomfortable because, uh, it's just too easy to condemn somebody and to completely ruin somebody. And, you know, if you're going to level very serious charges with very heavy consequences against somebody, um, they should have a, the ability to defend themselves if there's a defense yeah. to be made and then B, you better be right and you better have evidence. You know, you can't just like destroy a person uh, or destroy people in a, um, you know, in a reckless way. Like that's, that's not the, that doesn't feel like the answer to me. So I don't know. Like, it's just, I think it's a dynamic that a lot of people are familiar with. And 
sometimes it's rooted in truth and sometimes it's not. And sometimes, you know, there's a, like an emotional equilibrium to it, but a lot of times there's not. And I find it increasingly, um, why do I keep going back, going back to my silly potato bug metaphor? But a lot of times I'm just like, I, I, <laughs> like I'm just at the point where Can I'm... Can we call this the potato bug episode? <laughs> yes, yeah. Or the, the theory of the case. But I just, I guess I just find myself tuning out maybe more than I did um, and trying to sort of like take a breath. It's it just, I find myself overwhelmed maybe is the way to put it. I find that the internet... So when I say the internet, I should specify social media, social media kind of flattens the discourse so that everyone you're talking to, you're thinking about their identity markers in their profile and you're trying to say something in 280 characters or less. And you worry that if you say the wrong thing, you're going to get in trouble for that. And so there's only certain things that you can safely say um, and still keep your membership in the group. And I actually would love to to talk about the interview you did with Brett Easton Ellis on your show, because this is what I feel like the internet is missing, which is two people having a conversation and disagreeing with each other. I think it's actually really brave that you had him on the show. And I wouldn't say I'm some super fan that agrees with everything Brett Easton Ellis says or writes um, for people who are listening to this and want to put me in the bad person category. But just hearing you two have a dialogue, this is why I listen to podcasts. You know, podcasts can give me such a deeper, richer experience than having a conversation on Twitter. Yeah, no, I I, would, I loved talking with Brady Sinellis. And, uh, you know, like politically, like we're on opposite sides of the spectrum, it seems, or like on a lot of the issues. But I think a lot of what he has to say about cancel culture um, – and kind of the things that we were talking about, I feel like I'm I'm simpatico with him there. Like I, I don't feel like it's an across the board disagreement. And I agree with you. Like it's nice. Like I love to have conversations with people with whom I don't fully agree. And I mm-hmm. totally appreciated the fact that he came over and sat down for like two hours and you know and indulged me and had that conversation. Like um, I did not finish. Let me put it to you this way: I didn't finish the conversation feeling like ugh. I finished the conversation. <laughs> I finished the conversation feeling sort of invigorated and challenged. And I, um, I like people ask me about it a lot because the conversation, you know, there were points of contention and he's like a higher profile writer or whatever. And I was like, I liked him. Like I didn't, like when he left, we were not like, you know, like our hackles weren't up, you know, like it was a cordial experience. And I thought that he was, um, you know, he was, he was an, he's a good guy. It just to me, he has crazy politics and, um, he probably would say something similar, you know, he'd say that I was nice enough, but also have crazy politics. Uh, yeah. and that's okay. You know, like that's okay. I think those kinds of, I think those kinds of conversations are, are what we need more of and not less of. I don't know what you get from sitting inside of an echo chamber, talking to people with whom you agree. Precisely. And I have to tell you when I was writing self-care, um, Aaron Hosier, who is my agent and I believe your agent too, Correct. Yeah. um, she said, have you read American Psycho? And my first reaction was no, because I'm a good feminist. I thought this was a very bad book that I should avoid because the feminist said it was a very bad book. And then I bravely started reading American Psycho. And I was like, this is hilarious. And of course, there are, you know, there's misogynistic rape and murder 
um, in this book, but the the way he kind of skewers this like vapid sociopath with his Clinique skincare regimen and his gym workouts, like that's exactly what I wanted to do in my own novel. Um, and so I have like a whole, uh, um, you know, a whole shower scene from Devin's point of view that lists all the different products she applies before, during and after her shower and how she has the antimicrobial shower head so she doesn't get cancer. That's available on the Goop website, by the way. Oh, wait, do we? Do um, I need that? See, now I'm going to go Google this. <laughs> But this kind of obsession with grooming um, and and narcissism, like that was, it was such an influential book for me when I was writing self-care. Yeah, no, I feel like it's a, like a, um, that book, you know, is predictive, like ahead of its time culturally. And like, and not necessarily in a good way. You sort of hope it would have been wrong, you know, in a lot of ways. But, <laughs> um, you know, like that, like that take on the culture, uh, not without merit. And, you know, look at where we are now. Like there's a... I don't know. It's almost like a grim synergy between the two. But mm -hmm. um, I guess like when you, uh, you know, when you finish writing a book like this and when you come out of the work experience that you went through at BinderCon, have you, like if your attitudes or positions markedly changed uh, or your behaviors, you know, like, like how has, how have things changed since you resigned, wrote this book? Um, you know, went through the process of building this satire, like it had to have informed your life in some like uh, tangible way. I would say my politics have changed. I've been on kind of an ideological journey. And I'm just remembering that I never got to talk about Khadijah, who I, who I oh. don't want to be remiss. Right, right, please. Um, but I think these two things will connect. So Khadijah is um, a black woman and she's the first hire for the company because Marin and Devin are savvy and know that they can't just have a white woman only company. They need some diversity. And Khadijah is in charge of their editorial content and she's extremely online. So that's kind of a part of me that informed Khadijah that she kind of sees her life in terms of potential personal essays she could write because everything is filtered through the Internet for her. Um, and so I would say from resigning from BinderCon, so there was like a pivotal turning point for me towards the end of my time, um, running BinderCon, there was a vicious rumor started about, um, another writer and it's the rumor said that she was leaking screenshots of a group to a journalist. And, um, I was in a small Facebook messenger app thing with a bunch of other moderators of the Facebook group. And I, that's why I heard about this. And I said, who did it? And they told me the name of this person. And I said, it couldn't be that person. That's she's my friend. Like we live in the same town and we go to Starbucks together. Like I know this person and she wouldn't do that. And they said, it must be so hard to hear that your friend would do this. And I thought, I don't even have enough power as the executive director of this organization to stand up for my own friend. It was so disturbing to me um, that that really started to it's almost like I started to wake up from the dream that I had been a good girl and I had followed the party line and I had said what people had told me to say and I had been the face of this organization and I started to ask myself, like, do I do I believe this ideology? Am I this social justice warrior? Um, you know, I'm using I'm using, you know, stereotype terms here to kind of paint a picture of this caricature. But I would say that I over time. I became more comfortable having conversations like the one you just described where I, I'm more com I am comfortable talking to someone who doesn't agree with me and I don't feel like my belief system is threatened if, um, if I have a conversation with a Republican or something. And I would say I'm still 
left wing. I donated to Elizabeth Warren's campaign. Like she would have been my number one pick. Me too. Um, Me too. And I'm going to vote for Biden in the fall. So I'm Absolutely. not. I didn't become right wing, but I I think I've moved a little bit towards the center. Yeah, I I, I think that's kind of where I live. Like I mistrust ideology uh, and ideological, like like really hardcore ideological positioning. Um, right. From any side, from any side, any side, yeah. just because it's such a fixed position and I see yeah. things as being endlessly gray. And so I think in the primary season, uh, you know, when the democratic primary was underway and there was all this tension among the left, you know, the various factions of the left. Um, and I guess to some extent it's still there. It's just, I feel like it's been muted because of COVID and all that's happened. Um, you know, I don't know. It, it doesn't seem like it's been as heated as it was or, or, as heated as it was at this point in the campaign season in 2016. Um, I, I feel like there are these micro targets because we can't hit the big target. Like, how do we get Mitch McConnell out of his job running the country? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I would like to do, but I don't know how to do that. So instead we aim our targets at, at these minor characters, you know, like the, for example, the woman who went as Megyn Kelly in blackface to a Halloween party two years ago, who lost her job and got written up in the Washington post is that really the person that we want, we want to topple, you know? So we, we topple the statues that are easiest to topple, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and people have all this anger and they need a place to put it. Um, and I think there's also, I don't know, there can be something kind of like performative about, uh, a lot of it, you know, maybe not in the actual, well, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, like a lot, yeah. there can be a lot of performative behavior around these sorts of things. Yeah. But I think that when it comes to ideological, uh, positioning, uh, and the gray area that I, I think I'm an advocate for, uh, you know, there is a strange tendency and maybe this exists on the right. I'm less familiar with it cause I just don't spend as much time mm -hmm. in that realm, but there's a strange tendency among, I think the hard left or like the, the farther reaches of the left to train their, um, their anger on other members of the left rather than on Donald Trump, who is the like actual autocrat, racist, misogynist, rapist. Yep. You know, like, yep. And I just, I'm just like, my God, where are our priorities? Why can we not just prioritize this? Like, yes, like Biden is not like making me like do some sort of ecstatic dance, but like, he's way better than what, what's currently, what we're currently dealing with to say the least, like, like a million times better. And uh, I've had this argument with people where I'm like, look, even if he just rejoins the Paris Climate Accord, like if that's the only <laughs> thing he does, like yeah. we are light years better than we would be otherwise, you know, like, 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 let's get this in perspective. Like, I don't understand the infighting, I guess. And like, I think when there is that infighting, it's because people are holding on so hard to uh, an ideological position that is uncompromising and it's that very unwillingness to compromise that makes them feel i think performatively woke or you know uh hardcore or right you know and i don't know i don't see politics i guess maybe it's a function of age or attitude or something but i just don't see politics as a zero-sum game like that and i certainly don't mm. i certainly don't see it as like christmas where you get all your toys in the morning and yeah. Everything you ask for on your list, if, you know, Santa Claus is going to deliver and if Santa Claus doesn't give you everything on your list, 
what you riot and go home, you know, it's like, ah, you know, like I, I see it as like something that you're just bound to be disappointed by. So like, mm. if it comes down to it, take a half a loaf. Like, I know it sucks, but like take a <laughs> half a loaf. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And I also think like we should just acknowledge like how big some of these systemic challenges are. And I think it's really overwhelming. And so we focus on what's in our control. You know, we focus on what is Minneapolis doing about their own police department and, and what meeting does someone need to show up at? Meanwhile, we have a whole for-profit prison industrial complex. You know, what do we do about that? Um and it's, it's so overwhelming. So we look for these smaller targets. And in, in self-care, the character Khadijah in college has this Tumblr called the Panopticon. So she's kind of um, observing how, I say women, but we could say people, but how we surveil each other. And I think this happens especially on the left where we're kind of looking for transgressions um, so that we can catch someone in the act of saying or doing the wrong thing. And I think we're missing the bigger picture often. Well, yeah. And we aren't even going for that half a loaf. I mean, <laughs> like no one's even thinking about the half a loaf. Like they're, they're looking to see like, like, is there a twist tie on the bread bag? Right. And okay. And I think too, like um, a related thought is the survey that uh, I think is sadly related or is uh, based on real life. It's like the survey of um, survey asking people to talk about their traumas and way that that might be in ways that their traumas from their life might be uh, transformed into content. Uh, yeah. So this comes from the character Marin. So, so she helps the network of influencers appear authentic and real to their followers by strategically disclosing traumatic things that have happened to them. And I based this on a true survey that the website, the women's website bustle sent at some point to their freelancers that basically asks, you know, like, do you know someone who's overdosed on heroin? Do you know someone who is a cutter? Do you have you been raped? Do you know someone who's been raped? It goes on and on. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So this feels tied to me to wanting to sort of uh, surveil people for transgressions and to be the person that outs them. Like there's something obviously performative about outing that kind of thing. And I think that there's an incentive structure, especially on social media, to be the sort of like hero sheriff who like... Disclo- yes. you know, discloses this stuff. And I think the, the, I think the line that I'm drawing in my head between that and between the survey that you just talked about and, uh, the way that people have, you know, they are often writing about their identity, whether it's like a racial identity or a sexual identity or a gender identity, or they're writing about trauma, you know, these like, mm-hmm. these like, uh, you know, incredibly difficult experiences that they've been through that are formative and so central to who they are. And how the incentive structure that results uh, on social media, you know, I think can cause people to move in the direction of surveilling or move in the direction of like intensely identifying with uh, their identity (laughs) Uh, because there is all this reciprocity to be found, hopefully in the form of followers and likes and retweets and love. And, you know, it's that performative wokeness thing. And I don't know, it's like, it, to me, it becomes exhausting at a certain point. And I also, you know, in some cases, I think it's a, a, entirely appropriate. I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. I think you could point to many instances where somebody's bravely writing a personal essay that's really healing to a lot of people who might've gone through something similar. Um, but I just think that, at a certain point, the volume of it gets to be a bit much. And I can find myself mistrusting um, 
you know, those tendencies and not just in other people, but I can find myself sometimes thinking along those lines. Like, what? you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other layer I would add to everything you said is that, um, we increasingly make assumptions about ideology based on identity, but it's not true. I can use myself as an example. It's not true that all Jewish women think the same thing, right? You, Jewish women are not a monolith. Black women are not a monolith. White men are not a monolith. You know, we can't make assumptions that just because someone ticks off certain identity markers, they believe a certain thing. Um, and so I, I, I kind of reject that as a premise. <laughs> no, that's a good point to be made. That's a good point to be made. You know, and I, I just, uh, I think like there's got to be, like, do you think there's going to be, maybe we, we're experiencing it now, but there's, there's going to have to be some kind of backlash or. Yeah, I think there's, there's going to be an increasing uh, backlash to the, to the extremes of wokeness. And I'm not against social justice and I'm not against activism. I'm against this this extremism on the left. Yeah, which I think has a lot in a lot in common with the extremism of the right. Like I think they, like that's the irony to me is that I think there's a dovetailing that happens at the very, um, like most intensely ideological reaches of the political spectrum. I think they actually have quite a lot in common uh, in some ways, and um, I think that we have to get to a place where there can be dialogue, like you said, among people who disagree and somehow, and this is where I start to get maybe like more negative and cynical than um, I would like is that we've got to figure out a way to um, create more sane structures around the revelation and processing of transgression uh, mm, like mm -hmm, to get mm -hmm. out of this like mob mentality, you know, where people like the cancel culture thing, like, does anybody like cancel culture? I mean, who likes it? Like, it just seems like but it, this is, again, the hero sheriff. It feels good to feel like you're the one that got that person to suffer consequences. You were on the good side. Right. But even then, I bet you there's a hangover unless it's somebody who really deserved it, you know, and you found, you know, I don't know. But like, I just. Like if you just glance at like trending topics on Twitter on any given day, you know, it's like, oh, well, today we hate this person. You know, it's like it's like who we who's the hate fest going to be? Uh, right. Who's the main character of the Internet today? Yeah. Who's the main character of like we hate you, you're canceled. And, you know, to be honest, I feel like a lot of this stuff doesn't really stick like it, it's happening so frequently. They, like, like to get back to the incentive structure, like I feel like it's happening so frequently that it's just become a form of entertainment. And Absolutely. a lot of these celebrities, you know, who, you know, might go through an uncomfortable 24 to 48 hours um, that maybe even like a year ago would have caused them to like either resign or make some sort of like really big, weepy public apology. A lot of them have just learned to just stay quiet and let it pass and it'll go on to somebody else, you know, uh, like it's almost to the point where I think it becomes noise and it doesn't really stick unless there's something really super bad at stake, you know. Yeah, and the other fascinating thing is that the, the people that join the pylon think that they are pure and the mob could never come to them uh -huh. for them. Right. But but those are the really interesting examples where you see someone being taken down and I think, I remember you because you participated in it last time. So so you're not safe. No one's safe. And I want to be a person that speaks out against this. That's what I want to be known for, not as someone um, who is self-righteous and pure and virtuous and, and joins in to punish people online. Right, 
right? Like as if your hands are clean as a human being. Like I think there is some there is such a thing as somebody who has done something so monumentally shitty that like all reasonable people can agree that there need to be Of course. But there's also But how many Harvey Weinsteins are there? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so um you know, especially when it's something somebody did like 20 years ago, like uh, like what's the statute of limitations? Like I my god, if they had phone cameras when I was 16 years old, like I'd be dead. Right. I'd be dead right now. Like there'd be no, there would just be, you know, there'd be a pile of ashes where Brad Listy used to be. Like they would have just <laughs> like, like, like lasered me or something, you know, but it's just, uh, I think all of us, you know, could stand to be uh, a little bit, uh, more humble or have a little bit more humility, you know, when it comes to prosecuting the behaviors of other people, like we're all a, a mess, you know, like nobody's Move, like very few of us have moved through life without saying or doing something that in this environment couldn't be blown up into like a scandal. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. J Jessa Crispin has a great passage on this in her book, why I'm not a feminist. I don't know if you read that, but she talks about, you know, like we all keep, we all carry these lists around with us of who's wronged us. These are like mental lists. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that person, you know, it's like my list of nemeses. Um, but she's like, remember, you're on someone else's list. Right. Right. I love Jessica Christman. She's like a. She's I, super smart. Yeah. And she's not afraid of the mob. No, exactly. That's why I like reading her because she's always got like a strong sort of take that uh, is unexpected or something. Yeah. Um, but Even you, when I don't agree with her, it's refreshing, embracing. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I, as you were saying that, I was thinking like there's probably somebody who like emailed me like wanting to be on the podcast and like I didn't get back to them. And you were going through the the list. Yeah, and they're and they're like, no, but they're at home like weaving like a voodoo, like a Brad Listy voodoo doll. I'm like, you know, like they're gonna be uh, like someone. Probably... Maybe that's why the mosquitoes are biting your ankles. That's right. They, my my garage has been, uh, you know, they loosed these mosquitoes into my garage to attack me. But it's uh yeah it's it's impossible I think to be a person and to get to a certain age and not have done something that somebody perceives as being horribly wrong and you know I kind of feel yeah. I kind of feel like that it doesn't I mean you tell me like in you know if we're gonna get uh back to this idea of self care and how to operate in the world in a way that's sane and healthy or like reasonably sane and healthy. Like I often will feel like the people who are sanest in the world, just, they just don't engage as much. Mm -hmm. Like they tune out, like, you know, like how could you possibly drink from this fire hose and not be like overwhelmed and, you know, made crazy. Like it's almost better to just sort of follow the beat of your own drum, pick and choose your spots and just kind of like be weird in your own world, but not be part of this, noisy social media conversation that just seems to be increasingly nuts. The being weird is so important. And, and Brett Snellis talks a little bit about this too, when he says, you know, like he was like, he was always the, like, I, I don't know how he puts it exactly, but he was like, he was gay and he was the outlier liar. And so he moved to New York city, you know, like where all the outliers go. And like, this is how I identify as an artist. I'm an artist because I'm a nonconformist. I want to make something that goes against the grain um, I don't want to conform to the same belief system as everyone around me, because how do you make art if you have the same thoughts <laughs> as everyone else? So I, I think holding on to your weirdness um, is super important if you're a writer. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think that um, 
maybe one of the functions, like one of the negative functions, unless I guess you have your, you know, you have your defenses up and you're like, it's sort of like, you know, how people will say if you watch like violent movies that it can disturb your psyche or whatever. Mm -hmm. But if you're like conscious of the fact that the violence can disturb your psyche, that's like a barrier. (laughs) Interesting. That makes sense. That makes sense. Logically. Yeah. yeah, To have an awareness like, oh, I'm watching something violent. Like, you know, like to instead of just being like fully immersed and like experiencing it emotionally. Um, And I think like as an artist, if you're somebody who's spending an inordinate amount of time on social media, as I once did, um, it can have that flattening effect, you know, Mm -hmm. and it can dull you know, it can dull the, um, the creative impulse and it can make, make you less interesting. <laughs> uh, yep. you know, your perspective, it can make your perspective less interesting because you're, you know, you're, you're basically trying to write in a really noisy room essentially. Yeah. And I would say like with this novel, you know, my novel's been out today's Thursday, came out on Tuesday. So my novel's been out for 48 hours, but like I was very intentional going into this book promotion madness. Like I wanted to write a book that was controversial and I I didn't want to write a safe book that pleased everyone because what's, what's interesting about that. Um, so I'm excited for people to talk about my book and argue about it. And, um, I, I, it's a little scary to me because I do, I am like a people pleaser and I, I don't have a thick skin. I wouldn't say I'm someone with a thick skin, but I had to kind of um, puff up my chest and say like, just, just go for it because I would regret it later if I didn't say what I really thought, like on a podcast like this one. Yeah. Well, and what about, uh, you know, like, I think, I don't think we've talked about the girl boss movement like that. It had its own name, you know, and uh, this is something that over the past decade, kind of experienced a rise and fall, you know, a lot of the, the girl bosses, um, you know, that made, uh, made a mark and were in the media, you know, have, have left, um, their company sometimes by force, (laughs) you know, or their companies just went under, but you know, there seems to, there seems to be a bit of a rise and fall narrative. Like, where do you feel like that, um, movement is and how do you feel about it and and where do you think it took things for for women in the workplace well i think it came it it kind of cheryl sandberg kind of launched it with lena and even though she's i think she's gen x she's not millennial but but her kind of whole idea of self-empowerment feminism you know fight for yourself ask for the raise but do it in a way that talks about the whole team so people will like you and give you the raise Uh, it was kind of just making all these um compromises and negotiating the corporate workspace. I mean, it's very written for a certain workplace that I'm not a part of. But because of that, we got a bunch of these kind of hustling millennial women who went for it and who got VC funding and who were kind of competing with the boys club in a way that felt energizing and inspiring to other ambitious white women who made them icons. So this is Audrey Gelman of The Wing or Emily Weiss of Glossier or Mickey Agarwal of Thinks Underwear. Mickey Agarwal is not white, but um, she she engaged in all kinds of abusive workplace practices. So I was really interested in collecting these stories while I was writing self-care of women who were abusive bosses in the workplace because while the Me Too movement was shining a light on sexual harassment and sexual assault perpetrated by men, I I don't think women are necessarily more virtuous or ethical managers. They can be. I mean, it can be great to work for women, um, but they can also be they can also abuse their power. I don't think men are the only ones who can abuse power. So that's one of the themes that I'm exploring in self-care. Yeah. And I think, too, like 
whenever I hear, I mean, there have been a lot of stories lately about, um, you know, CEOs who have been outed for having, um, you know, incredibly poor records on diversity or who have been like outwardly racist in the workplace and have abused their employees. And, um, you know, those, those kinds of stories are, um, you know, sort of the obvious ones. And then there'll be other stories where you have, uh, co- employees lodging complaints or, um, CEOs being just accused of doing a poor job, uh, at diversity and where my head will sometimes go is I will think to myself, like, what if you were in charge of a company? Like, let's say Brad, mm. Brad Listy starts a company. Like, it's really easy to say, like, oh, man, you're doing a shitty job, you know, and it's easy to point the finger at people. But, like, how do you, like, how would it actually look? Like, what would I do? And how, mm-hmm. how would I do better, you know? And I guess I just don't know enough about business to maybe be able to imagine it in, a, like, a robust way. But uh, do you see like the line of thinking that I'm I'm getting into? Like it's just, I... yeah. And it's 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 hard for me to. It's like it's like asking us to do a thought experiment about like what would ethical capitalism look like? Because I think one of the issues is that these startups are all in this model of move fast and break things. So you have to scale really fast to earn your investors um, a return, and so there's no time to sit and think, okay, like, what do I want the board to look like? Who do I want there? Like, okay, what are we going to have an HR department? One of the reviews of my book just said, like, it was such a perfect startup detail that there's no HR department at my, at my imaginary company ritual. Um, there are just things that you, that you sacrifice early on in order to make a profit. And if we slow down, um, things might, there might be a better framework from the very beginning of Brad Listy's imaginary company so that, um, you could build it from the ground up in that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Like the financial pressures, like, like just how chaotic business life is in general, like anybody who's ever worked in an office or with a startup in particular, which I have like startups are insane. Um, and it's always just a shit show. You know, nobody really knows what they're doing, <laughs> or at least this has been my experience. Like it's, it's a very fluid environment. And, uh, I don't think like a lot of times, I don't think that when these stories are written, like the internal pressures that exist within these companies, financial and otherwise, and just the level of chaos is factored into the equation. Um, like who knows how these people even get their funding. You know, you go out to these venture capitalists, you convince somebody to give you a check and then, you know, you've got like a year's worth of funding basically to start turning a profit and it's off to the races. And yeah, and it's like, a, and there's so much gender and racial inequity in VC funding, like certain companies get funded, you know, that are helmed by men primarily. Right. Right. And like a, like Ivy league dude. So Brad Listy, I think you have a chance. You think, I don't know. I feel like it's a bad time to be Brad. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if the world is like ready for, you know, I, I've, I have like, I like to joke about this sometimes, but it's just like Brad, like nobody, nobody needs the era that. of Brad is over the era of Brad. I don't even know if it ever started, but it's over for sure. <laughs> uh, um, so let's talk about how you're taking care of yourself during COVID. Like, and I mean, I think obviously the, you titled this, uh, uh, a satirical novel self-care. There's a lot of us, I think, who love to eye roll at that term, um, mm-hmm. even as we might engage in such practices, you know, but, uh, like, where are you on that whole thing? Like, have you tightened, you know, have you loosened your grip on some of your routines? Like, were you more intense about <laughs> it four years ago and have you kind of like relaxed a little bit or has COVID you know, are you buying more scented candles now than you used to? Like what's happening? 
I've actually, um, I've been with a new therapist for the past year and I've actually like gotten much better at practicing self-care. And um, during quarantine on March 2nd, I decided to run an experiment and stop drinking alcohol. I read this book called The Naked Mind by Annie Grace that was really influential on me. And so I I didn't drink for about, I think it was 103 days I lasted. I've been having some wine um, during these stressful book launch times. But I, I am proud of myself for the 100 days that I didn't drink. And I really um, learned more about our relationship with alcohol and really explored that. And it's been kind of healing for me because, of course, the character Marin in my book has a drinking problem. She's worse than me, but so I kind of exaggerated my own bad qualities. But um, it's been kind of interesting to become a character from my book, but in a in a more healthy way. Well, okay, so what did you learn? Because I'm I've I people who listen to this show know I fixate on this sometimes. Because like I have I have a drink pretty much every day, but it's like usually just one glass of wine, and even that I'm like, is that what's why do I need that? Is this my Dumbo's feather? Like why do I got to have that? Or it's a habit. It's a habit. And so I was really struggling with. I wanted to drink less. So I was like a nightly wine drinker, but I was not like a binge drinker. I didn't get drunk. I didn't uh, have hangovers. Yeah, me neither. But I was a nightly wine drinker and I kept wanting to cut back. And then every day at like five or six o'clock, there would be a reason for me to pour a glass. And I was really frustrated with myself and felt like I was failing myself because I'm I'm a very like, uh, I have very high expectations for, for myself. I'm very disciplined and productive and I'm very hard on myself. So this was very frustrating for me. Yeah, I feel that way too. Like I'm like, I'm like, I like I will impose austerities on myself sometimes to, you know, I sometimes like this is the thing. I'm of two minds on it. Like part of me will be like, why do you need that? What, what, what why, why do you need this crutch? What, what's up with this habit? And then there's going to be another part of me that's like, dude, relax. It's one glass of wine a day. Like, exactly. Why are you imposing? Are you a Libra? No, I'm a Leo. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Nobody, every time I tell okay. people that, they're like, you are? But I, I don't know. I don't know enough about the Zodiac. But You're a pretty humble Leo, I think. I, thank you. I, yeah, because I feel like Leos are assholes. I don't want to be a Leo. Leos are like these arrogant preening lions or something, kings of the Zodiac. Like, I don't want to be like that. Well, I think you would really find Annie Grace's book interesting. Um, and she's not dogmatic. That's the other thing that was really attractive to me because I thought, do I have to join AA? Do I have to join AA? And that <laughs> idea was so scary to me right. that I just resisted doing anything about it. And then I read this book and I was like, oh, I can just like stop for 30 days and see how I feel then. How did you feel? I felt incredible. I started writing poetry again for the first time in 10 years. Really? It was unbelievable. It's like I had a creative awakening um, and I slept so much better. I thought I thought I was so scared of stopping drinking because I thought my life will be just like this, but I won't get to have a glass of wine at the end of the day. And that was really scary to me. But what I re didn't realize was that my life would feel completely different when I wasn't drinking. I felt different on a daily basis once I got past like the first maybe the first couple weeks. Um, my energy, my focus, my creativity, my sleep, like it was all different and very subtle but noticeable. Really? Okay, now you're selling. Now it. I sound like a guru. Right, right. <laughs> Are you making fingers, uh, finger steeples as you say this? Are your hands? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, now you're selling me. Maybe I need to. Maybe I need to cut it out and uh, go on one of these like a hundred day, you know, no just alcohol. Just do thirty days. Just set a really low. Just set a really low bar because after thirty days, I thought I could keep doing this because I felt good. It, I didn't feel deprived. I felt good. Yeah. I mean, I don't care. Like the thing is, I'm not getting drunk. I don't give a shit one way or the right. other. I just, I like, I do like the experience of drinking a glass of wine with dinner. 
Um, yeah. Like it tastes that's good. That's very normal. It's delicious. It's very normal. Right. Yeah. Um, but like, I don't know. I also don't want to like, uh, I don't like any kind of dependence on anything. And um, I, I guess I, I sometimes like, I can get myself into these frames of mind where I'm like, are you tricking yourself? You know? What I'm mm, right. Yeah. What stories are you telling yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, you know, I'm sure you can probably work this out better with a therapist, but um, you know, I haven't gotten there yet. So uh, you did this reading, you quit drinking. Uh, anything else from a self-care perspective? You know, you talked about your therapist helping you uh, sort things out. Like wh where else are you, you know, where else are you on this uh, spectrum? Um, my therapist keeps reminding me that like I inhabit a body. Like I spend a lot of time in my head. And so that's been also a, a shift. Like she's, you know, noticing my breathing and where I'm holding my breath, which I'm not even good at doing on a regular basis, but it's kind of mind blowing um, as, a, as a practice to remember that we inhabit a, a corporal form. <laughs> right. Especially for writerly people who are, you know, yeah. like super thinky people, like you can kind of forget. Um, I think that's why I like to exercise. Do you exercise? Yeah, I got I got into like a real big yoga kick at some point during quarantine. I was doing yoga. I was actually really happy that all these yoga teachers that I might not be able to study with in person, like I could just live stream them at home. Right. That was exciting. So I was like doing yoga every day for a short period of time. And then I fell off that wagon. Um, I feel I feel like I get like on these kicks yeah. where I'm like, this is it. I'm the yoga everyday person now, you know. <laughs> and then you're like, eh, you know, yeah. It's hard though. I think that it's a little bit harder to sustain when you're on your own at home. Like there's something nice about the convenience of it and the access, but I think when it comes to like doing long haul stuff, it's like better to have like the immediate in-person social pressure. Like you can't slack your way through a class or cut out midway as easily if you're like in the studio. Do you know what I'm saying? Totally. And I live in Connecticut, so um we're doing pretty okay with COVID cases, so um, one of my yoga teachers had a class in her driveway where we were all socially distanced on our mats. And it was like one of the most thrilling experiences like of quarantine, just being outside with other people and doing yoga together, which I haven't done in months, was like very beautiful. Yeah, I look forward to that. Like being able to, I mean, I, like, I don't know when I'll ever be able to go back to the gym. Like it's going right, to take, right. take a lot for me to feel comfortable with a gym yeah. just because, I mean, I was sort of skeeved out by gyms and yoga studios before all this. Like they're always... <laughs> You know, I'm not, in terms of germs, you mean? Just yeah, and just bodily fluids and people being disgusting in general. <laughs> uh, but you know, I feel like with COVID, it's like no, I'm not. I'm not going to be the guinea pig on the reopening. You know, like I'll let other people right. sort that out. Right. Um, so, what about film and television stuff? Like, has there been interest around this book for film <laughs> and television? I'll just say I've had some calls. I think that's all I can say. That's interesting and cryptic. <laughs> you'll uh, you'll be the first person to know um, if if my life changes. <laughs> I better be. I better be. But yeah, yeah. I feel like this. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna be. Um, I, I will knock on wood because I'm superstitious, but I am gonna say that I feel like this could be like an excellent. Uh, oh, I'm gonna say TV series just because that tends mm -hmm. that tends to be the way things are going with novels, like novelistic storytelling. Um, maybe like, what do they call it? Limited series, limited edition series. Oh yeah. Limited series. Like I think, um, Mrs. What's her name? Mrs. America. What's that Hulu show? Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Series. The Hulu show or the, um, like the, uh, oh God, 
what was the Francis McDormand adaptation about the <gasps> Olive Kitteridge? Olive Kitteridge, yeah. That was so good. Right. We had the woman that wrote the adaptation at BinderCon. Oh, really? Okay. Jane, I can't remember her last name. She was great. Well, well maybe she could uh, adapt uh, self care. <laughs> self care. There you go. <laughs> uh, well, I will be thinking good thoughts for you, and uh, I'm glad to catch up with you. It's like, what an interesting uh, thing to think about. Like the last time I, that we talked, when you and Lux were here, and then to, to be mm-hmm. talking to be talking to you now on the other side of that experience and all that followed. Uh, it's just good to catch up with you. You sound well. I will say that you sound like you're taking good care of yourself. Oh, thanks, Brad. Uh, thanks for that. Yeah. And I, uh, I wish you well and best of luck on, are you writing another book? Is that too much to ask at this point? (laughs) I have an idea. Um, and I'll just say it takes place in the past because I think writing right now during coronavirus for a while there, I was like, I was going to write about a virus. Like I was coming up with all these dystopian ideas that of course no one would want to read in the future. And then I realized, oh, I can go back in time. So I'm playing around with that. I hear you on that. I hear you on that. And I think like I've been laughing a little bit to myself thinking about how many writers are sitting at home like thinking like, should I write like a COVID? Like should I write a quarantine novel? You know, like how do I I capture this? And I'm sure there's going to be somebody who figures it out. But like to me, it's just exhausting to contemplate. Like, oh, my God, like I'm going to need some. But this is, again, what the asking yourself the question, what does a reader want? I don't know if they want to read about me in my garage, but. (laughs) (laughs) But they aren't going to want to read your dystopian, my dystopian virus novel. Yeah. Not anytime soon anyway. No. You know, like it's unless it's funny somehow, like spoonful of sugar you know what i'm saying especially when mm-hmm. it's like this grim and stupid um you know i i just i just wonder i i've had a conversation a lot uh with like literary friends and maybe on the show a bit about what this era is going to yield in terms of literary output because people have been um you know socially isolated and asked to stay indoors and at home from their jobs and naturally turning more inward than they otherwise would be we're all mm-hmm. we're all of us like a little death haunted and worried about mm-hmm. illness you know i kind of feel like it's going to produce some interesting art i've had other friends say like it won't be any different it'll just be more books come out and but i ha- i think there's something about like the crucible nature of all of it, not just COVID, but like the political intensity and, you know, the environment, like, holy hell, you know, like it, for me anyway, I think it's helped me focus more because it's like a, like to focus on a literary project is a reprieve from it all. Um, From reality. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, well, this is the way things are. I can't change them. This is insane. I have a very like low threshold for how much I can engage with this on a daily basis. I'm just going to focus on work and read and write. And it's been good for me on that level. You know, I don't know how good the book is, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great to hear. And and I know I, I don't have children myself, but I know a lot of writers are struggling right now because they, they, you know, have so many additional burdens on their shoulders that I, I just don't have. So I, I know that I'm l- lucky in that way um, to, to, to not have to do childcare and homeschooling on top of, you know, writing poetry. Well, I think, the answer, Lee, is that you should conceive a child during COVID. And can, <laughs> so I know how it feels. Yeah, and then do a home birth, you know, like get a... Oh, yeah, just... in a little inflatable swimming pool in my home. <laughs> right. In the barrel sauna. In the barrel sauna, yeah. If you're, if you're not giving birth at 120 degrees, you really... <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, what are you doing? Your child's going to be, uh, you know, they'll never get into the right preschool. 
Um, All right. Well, listen, it's awesome to catch up with you. Super fun to talk. uh, And I wish you all the best. Keep me posted on the eventual television adaptation. Thank you. I will for sure. Okay, guys, there you go. That's Lee Stein. Her new novel is called Self-Care. It is available from Penguin. You can find Lee online at LeeStein.com. You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle there is at RhymesWithB. She's also on Instagram. The book, again, is called Self-Care. Go get your copy immediately. It's out there now from Penguin Books. The Other People Show is offered freely. If you like the show, support the show. It's a listener-supported show. All 660-some-odd episodes are available for free. If you want to throw a couple of bucks in the hat, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to write to me, you can do that by emailing me. The address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget, too, that there is other people gear available. Do you want a t-shirt? Do you want a sweatshirt? Do you want a tank top? As we move through the dog days of summer, you can get those by visiting the show's website, otherppl.com. Look in the left sidebar. You'll see a a link to uh, apparel. Can't miss it. Get a t-shirt. Wear it around town. Cut the sleeves off. Make a statement. Uh, The Other People podcast also has its own official app. It, too, is free. The Other People with Brad List. The app is available wherever apps are available. Go get the app. It's a great way to listen. I'm not 100% sure who's on next week or who's up next. I'm sort of all caught up. So I do have, I know I have Nick Flynn in the uh, offing. That conversation is coming up. Nick Flynn has got a great new memoir out. And then uh, Hillary Leichter also coming up on the program. Kind of move through my, uh, I had like a bunch of interviews backlogged and I'm moving through those and now I'm ready to get rolling again. I finished my book so I can get, you know, get back on the, uh, on the podcast train. Is there a podcast train? Am I on the podcast train? (laughs) 